Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome to part two of our 500th episode special. This week we've got another bevy of stories for you, including some familiar voices and authors. 500 terrifying episodes. It's almost hard to believe, and I suppose a little bit arbitrary too. What is it about humans that feel the need to lend extra weight and significance to anything with a nice round number. Anniversaries especially. If nothing else, it's a perfect excuse to do something a little bit different, to give you an extra heaping helping of horror. Having staying power in a relatively new medium is nothing to sniff at, I suppose. It honestly still surprises me how many people are only now discovering the medium of podcasting. Also, in the time Tales to Terrify's been around, there's been a noticeable surge in horror as a genre. It seems to just keep gaining in mass appeal and popularity, and the sheer volume of good horror content has exploded in the last several years, in just about every format. When Tales to Terrify started, almost ten years ago, podcasting was still in its infancy. Myself, I've always been a fan of audio fiction. I remember lugging home these giant plastic cases full of cassettes 
from the library, then hiding under the covers, headphones on, until the wee hours, listening, mostly, to Stephen King. Tales like The Dark Tower and Night Shift. It's no surprise, I guess, that King was my first major introduction to audio fiction. Stephen King himself has always been a fairly outspoken supporter of the audio format. In an article released in 2007, King said, Some critics claim that listening to audiobooks isn't reading. I couldn't disagree more. In some ways, audio perfects reading. Audio is merciless. It exposes every bad sentence, half-baked metaphor, and lousy word choice. I can't remember ever reading a piece of work and wondering how it would look up on the silver screen, but I always wondered how it will sound. Because the spoken word is the acid test. They don't call it storytelling for nothing. I, for one, honestly couldn't agree more. Audio storytelling has been with me nearly as long as my love of the horror genre, to the point where the two are practically synonymous for me. I also have to admit that I'm an embarrassingly glacial reader. Sometimes it'll take me most of a year to get through a single novel. Interestingly, though, when I first discovered that podcasts were a thing, horror had fallen to the back burner in terms of my fiction-reading habits. Somewhere in my late teens and twenties, I'd turned more to fantasy as my favorite escape. But even then, they tended to be stories penciled with darker shades. Glenn Cook's The Black Company series has always been a favorite, and others like Clive Barker's Weave World and Imagica are both pretty dark, too. But from the very first listen, my podcast consumption has been steeped in horror. There's just something about the added vulnerability of popping in a pair of headphones and listening in the dark. It's a genre that lends itself perfectly to our medium. The No Sleep podcast was one of the first I dove into, alongside shows like Lore, Drabblecast, and Pseudopod. And in my voracious search for dark and disturbing fiction to devour, I also happened upon Tales to Terrify. And I was hooked. Larry's deep, warm, inviting voice beckoned each week to grab a beverage and a snack and curl up in a cozy corner of the nook with Mahler, the ink-black cat of the nook. And it honestly really felt like coming home. I never imagined at the time that, years later, I'd be the one on the other side of the mic, introducing our terrifying tales to the waiting ears of thousands of children of the night. But here we are, episode 500. I know I spend a lot of time giving shout-outs and thank-yous, but I honestly feel so privileged to be here, to introduce these tales to you each week and share some of my own. And there are so many people that deserve thanks for making this show possible those that are with us today, and those that came before. People like the late Lawrence Santoro and the District of Wonders Tony C. Smith, who founded the show. Stephen Kilpatrick and Scott Silk, who carried, grew, and evolved the show over years. 
and the many others who came between, most of which I've never had the chance to personally work with. Of course, that's not even to mention our current staff, including Seth, Meredith, Pete, and Brian, as well as Bryce and Julia. Add to that the incredible roster of amazingly talented voice actors who bring these stories to life, and the skillful and disturbed writers who pen them. We're so privileged to have so many talented and twisted people to bring this show to life, some of which we'll hear from tonight. But before we do, now that I've had a chance for a quick trip down memory lane, I'd like to share a few thoughts and greetings from those who've helped put this show together over the last couple of years. The indispensable, preternatural, and delightfully strange staff here at Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night. Let me add my welcome to episode 500, as well as my hope that you are getting comfortable while we're settling in to enjoy tonight's stories. If it hasn't been mentioned, you may want to grab a beverage of choice and potentially a snack, as again, we continue with more amazing stories from amazing authors and narrators. Fair warning, tonight's episode isn't short. Our intention when we planned our time tonight was to bring together some of the voices that have year after year delivered horror and terror to our ears. They, and all the other narrators that have given their time energy and dedication to telling us stories simply for the love of fiction are remarkable. They've truly helped make Tales to Terrify what it is today. And while I certainly do thank all of our patrons, listeners, and authors, tonight I tip my hat to the folks behind the microphone, the shapes lurking in the inky dark and keeping the ravenous beast fed. With that said, children of the night, be well and be kind and I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, children of the night. I'm Meredith Morgenstern, fiction editor here at Tales to Terrify. As we celebrate our 500th episode, I thought I'd pop into the party, introduce myself, have a few drinks, and mingle with the bleak, soul-sucking forces of darkness that lurk in the corners here at the podcast. I've been a fan of Tales to Terrify for a long time, and a member of the staff for two years. And I've loved every terrifying minute. Drew and Seth are two of the nicest people I've ever had the pleasure of knowing. I'm honored they brought me on board and that they trust my opinion for submissions. Oops, I mean, Drew and Seth are both malevolent creatures who haunt my nightmares and drive me to the brink of insanity. That's a little more on brand, right? I genuinely love finding stories in the submissions pile that disturb, amuse, or astonish me with their brilliance, creativity, and horror. We have some fantastically dark and possibly unwell authors out there. Whether it's vengeful spirits, animated skeletons, zombie girlfriends, haunted treehouses, misunderstood ancient Greek villains, evil turnips, or a Tales to Terrify staff favorite, Wendigos, it's been a pleasure to be part of the team. I hope our stories keep entertaining you, and I hope that at least once in a while, you're terrified. Congratulations, everyone. The staff, 
authors, narrators, and listeners on 500 episodes. Here's to 500 more and beyond. Good evening, children of the night. This is Associate Editor Peter Morsellino. I'd like to take a second away from my infernal toilings to congratulate everyone, staff, writers, narrators, and listeners alike, on 500 horrific episodes. We have many more sleepless nights ahead of us, but for now, let us rejoice. Sit back and enjoy these twisted tales that we've compiled for you this evening, and we hope you'll continue to join us for more. Hey gang, this is Brian Rollins, sometimes narrator, sometimes slush reader, sometimes narrator wrangler. Thank you for being with us for 500 episodes. It's been a wild ride, and honestly, hearing from you guys makes it all worthwhile. And, you know, being able to scare the crap out of you once in a while is kind of a fringe benefit. So, on behalf of myself, thank you so much for being with us, and here's to 500 more. Thank you, Seth, Meredith, Pete, and Brian, for the well wishes and thank yous. Now that we've heard from the people behind the show, let's take a listen to the fiction they've so deviously developed for this second anniversary episode. Our first story this evening comes to us from Lindsay King Miller. Lindsay King Miller is the author of Ask a Queer Chick, a guide to sex, love, and life for girls who dig girls. Her fiction has appeared in The Fiends in the Furrows, Tiny Nightmares, Grim Dark Magazine, Planet Scum, and numerous other publications. She lives in Denver, Colorado. Children of the Night, join me for Lindsay King Miller's Elegy for Mabel O'Malley, a Tales to Terrify original. When Mabel O'Malley fell off her horse and broke open her head, I thought I had wasted a perfectly good love spell. All those weeks, preparing herb tinctures, digging up roots by moonlight, catching a rabbit with my own two hands to bleed over the ritual fire. All that magic squandered on a woman who died before it could take hold. Her heart was a dead thing in the ground before it could ever be mine. I wished it had been my own skull crushed on the rocks, my blood soaking the red dirt redder. My mother would have been furious if she'd known, casting a love spell, worse, on a woman, worst of all, a married woman. She'd have called it a perversion of the sacred power bequeathed unto me. 
and probably slapped my face. I had to pretend I wasn't even mourning Mabel, while my heart broke inside my chest and my blood desiccated in my veins. As far as my mother was concerned, Mabel O'Malley was nothing more than my childhood friend. The plump, golden-haired girl with whom I used to climb apple trees and splash in the creek. The girl who'd stopped coming around as we both got older. As she became interested in boys. And I became interested in my mother's old, heavy book. The one with no title. That was kept under the bed instead of on the shelf next to the Bible. My mother was pleased when Mabel stopped coming to play. She must have assumed I'd been the one to end the association. You don't need to get too close to people, she said. Our ways are secret, and that's how they should stay. When I was younger, she warned me about the danger of boys, the way they could sap a witch's power and trap her in their own meager hopes and dreams. But as I never had any inclination that way, she mentioned it less and less. I think she thought I was a sort of ascetic, needing nothing beyond the arcane knowledge that she imparted to me in an occasional crust of bread. It made her proud. In truth, of course, I was simply, constantly, dreaming of Mabel. My mother was an icy woman, clear and sharp and cold. She was the town's herb woman and midwife, but for all the lives she'd saved and delivered into the world, she was not beloved. She spoke only when necessary, saving her voice for her magic. The more you use your words, the more you disperse their strength, she told me, only once. She did not like to repeat herself. She did not sing or make idle conversation as she went about her daily tasks. She didn't like me to, either. Perhaps that was why I was so drawn to Mabel, who could talk for an hour about the colors of a sunrise and knew the words to more songs than I'd ever imagined might exist. And perhaps that, in the end was why Mabel tired of me. Because I could listen to her forever. But I could never hold up my end of the conversation. I never know what you're thinking, she said to me often during the last days of our friendship. Once, she asked what I thought it would be like to fall in love. And I sat in silence, thinking... Like this. Like this. Exactly like this. Until she sighed and said, Never mind. Mabel was married on a summer day between two old pine trees on the bank of Dandelion Creek. 
I wasn't invited to the wedding. But I cut a chicken's throat and watched the ceremony's reflection in the blood that spilled out. Her cheeks were very pink, and her body was soft and round, in the plain white dress her mother made. She carried a bouquet of wildflowers with dirt still clinging to their roots. Her husband, who I remembered Mabel's mother referring to as that nice young man from the city, looked like he was strangling in his fine silk tie. I watched him kiss her, cupping her cheeks in his hands as though she were a bird he didn't want to escape. And before I'd even washed the chicken's blood from my hands, I knew I would cast the spell. My mother never taught me about love magic, except to say that it was frivolous and dangerous. Love is attention, and when witches draw attention, we come to harm. But I knew there were rituals in her book, written by generations of our family before she was born, that could conjure desire, passion, even faithfulness. The spell I chose was simple. I didn't want Mabel to leave her husband and follow me till the end of her days. I just wanted a few kisses behind the church, some sunny afternoon while that nice young man from the city was away at work, an embrace in the shadow of the pine trees some sunset. I wanted a sweet memory to warm my hands when the cold of loneliness settled deep in my bones. I wanted to hear her whispering in my ear, shielding me from my mother's painful silence. I knew Mabel could never be mine, I just wanted a few moments when I could safely tell her I was hers. If only I had that, I vowed as the rabbit's small spine broke in my hands, I would be content for the rest of my life. But then Mabel died, and the last memory I ever had of her was her pretty hands full of lupins the soft lines of her face melting and disappearing back into a puddle of rapidly congealing chicken's blood. I didn't go to her funeral, and I couldn't bear to sneak a glimpse at it by scrying. I didn't need to see a churchyard full of people grieving Mabel out loud while I swallowed my sobs, but I saw it anyway. The night she was buried, I lay awake in my bed for hours, dry-eyed, my stomach a snarl of thorns. I thought I would never sleep or eat or move my body from that spot again. Then I closed my eyes, and I was in the churchyard. The grass was the bright green of a spring morning, but the sky was midnight black. Everyone in town was there, in solemn rows, some dressed in their funeral bests, and some in their nightgowns. That nice young man from the city wore overalls and dirty work boots, and held a shovel. He was digging a hole in the ground, 
I saw pale hands scrabbling at its edges, but he gently pushed the fingers back into the hole with the edge of his shovel and kept digging. I walked closer. Mabel crouched in the hole like a rat, wearing her torn and dirt-streaked wedding dress, frantically trying to climb the muddy walls while her husband patiently prodded her back into the ground. Hester! She cried when she saw me. I tried to find you, but I can't get out. My heart lurched at the sight of her round face, grimy and tear-stained, but no less beautiful for that. Her head was crushed on one side, broken bone glinting through deep gouges in the flesh, blood-soaked black where her eye had been. She reached for me but her husband slammed his spade down, its flat edge chopping through the back of her hand and into the earth. Her fingertips fell off and wriggled in the loose dirt, trying to crawl towards me. Hester, she screamed. It wasn't pain or fear in her voice, but simple frustration. The way she'd shouted at me in childhood when I fell to daydreaming and lost track of whatever game we were playing. I scooped Mabel's fingers out of the mud and held them in the palm of my hand, watching them wriggle. When I looked up again, Mabel had her good hand wrapped around the handle of the shovel just above the blade. Her husband yanked back, trying to retrieve it, but his face was an absolute blank, revealing neither emotion nor effort. Mabel gave another tug and he tumbled face first into the open grave. She used his body to climb out of the hole until she stood before me. Well? My dead love asked. With the scattered logic of dreams, I wish I'd gone to church more often so I would know what to say next. Mabel's fingers in my hand scratched along my lifeline, trying to drag themselves away. I let them fall into the soil and watched as they burrowed down in neat little holes. Mabel gave a cry of exasperation, but I was afraid to see her face. I squeezed my eyes shut hard, and when I opened them, I was in my bed. I said nothing to my mother about the dream. I said nothing about Mabel at all. No good, I knew, could come of it. I kept my mouth shut tight and went to gather the eggs from the hen house. I didn't tell my mother either when I broke open an egg and found it full of what looked like human finger bones, clean and white and dry. I had been haunted by Mabel's memory for so long that I was hardly surprised when her ghost began to follow me. I caught odd glimpses of her from the corners of my eyes but she disappeared when I looked straight at her. Perhaps she had a message for me, something she needed passed along to her loved one still this side of the veil. Who better than a witch, after all, to act as courier for the dead? But she didn't speak to me. After a week had passed, I went to visit Mabel's mother. I brought her a cake on our nicest plate, and I kept my face still and mild when I told her I was terribly sorry to hear about her daughter. 
She took the cake from my hands, set it carefully on the kitchen table, looked me very earnestly in the eyes, and burst into tears. Have you dreamed about her? I asked, but the woman just sobbed. Eventually, I patted her on the shoulder and left her. As terribly as I ached with grief for Mabel, I couldn't reach out to comfort her mother. Each of us was alone with the pain we shared. Mabel followed me to her mother's house, but waited politely outside the door, declining to listen in on our conversation. I dreamed of her again that night. Once more, I was in the churchyard. Mabel's grave yawned in front of me, raw as a fresh wound. This time, there was no one else around. Mabel lay in the dirt with no coffin to protect her. One eye closed, the other destroyed beyond recognition. As I drew closer, her good eye opened and she stared up at me. Hester, she said softly. She reached a hand up. I was standing on the edge of her grave and she was six feet deep in the earth. But somehow her fingers laced through mine anyway and pulled. It wasn't a hard yank, just a gentle tug, a beckoning. But it was Mabel, so I let myself fall. I lay in the earth with Mabel, our fingers still entwined, the lengths of our bodies pressed together. With her free hand, she caressed my cheek. The smell of blood and rot were overwhelming. But I didn't flinch. I barely noticed that the fingers on my skin were stumps, splinters of bone sticking out through raw flesh. I didn't care what Mabel was as long as she was touching me. Mabel smiled, with the good half of her mouth. Her weight shifted underneath me, pressing her thigh between both of mine. I want to stay with you, she murmured. Can I stay? I watched, entranced, as an ant crawled over her bottom lip and out of her mouth. Then I bent my head to kiss the place it had been. My lips brushed nothingness. I was in my bed, and Mabel was gone. My body prickled with heat, a doomed, desperate yearning that kept me awake for the rest of the night. Three days later, I was bent over my mother's herb garden pulling weeds when I heard a low, snuffling sound like a wounded animal trying to burrow into the earth. I looked up and saw her face staring straight back at me, not flickering in the corners as it had before. Something black and horrible leaked from her eyes like tears, and I realized the substance had once been blood. It oozed from her nose as well, and the corners of her mouth. Oh, love, I said softly forgetting everything my mother had taught me. Witches may listen to the dead, but never speak. But I ached to see Mabel cry, and I couldn't help but ask, What pains you? 
She reached out her hand, the one that ended just above the second row of knuckles, only the thumb remaining whole, and pressed her dead, cold palm to my cheek. It didn't feel like a misty presence of a spirit. It felt like a corpse. I felt something squirm. Not her hand, but inside her hand, something separate and alive beneath her skin, groping blindly towards the warmth of my flesh. I looked into Mabel's bleeding eyes and felt my heart plunging into an abyss, deeper and darker than I had ever known. Her hand moved, trailing the tip of her thumb down to the corner of my mouth. The thumbnail hung loose and gray, and I parted my lips to kiss it. Hester, she cooed, her voice wretched and raw. Then she was gone. I found the finger bones where I'd tucked them away inside my pillowcase. Perhaps she came searching for them, unable to rest until her earthly remains were returned to the grave. It was a short walk through the little town to the church. With the sun almost set, its white bell tower cast a sharp, pointed shadow across the graveyard, cutting through the grass like a knife through flesh. I knelt before her gravestone, unique in a field of wooden markers. That nice young man from the city had run out of time to pamper Mabel in life, but he'd taken his last opportunity to lavish her with ostentatious affection. Wreaths of intricately carved stone flowers circled Mabel's name in ornate script. The flowers were enormous roses, garden blooms, nothing like the wildflowers Mabel had loved best. Using my hands, I scooped away some dirt from the foot of the headstone. The soil was so cold it hurt to touch, although the day had been hot. Stopping every minute or so to breathe on my fingers, I finally scratched out a hole around six inches deep and decided I could go no further. I placed Mabel's finger bones one by one at the bottom, then filled the hole in again. I stayed where I was for a few moments, uncertain what I was waiting for. When nothing happened, I rose to my feet and walked slowly home. Mabel's bones were still in my pillowcase, exactly where I'd retrieved them from an hour before. I stared at them for a long time, and then, although the sky was still violet with sunset, I climbed into bed and closed my eyes. When I woke, it was the middle of the night. The moon was high and my pillow was wet. Had I wept in my sleep? In the dark I felt my face, but the moisture that pooled beneath my cheek was thicker than tears, coating my fingertips and smelling like metal. I was bleeding. Horrified, I sat up and lit the lamp on my bedstand. The pillow was soaked with blood. The whole room stank of it. Yet I could feel no pain, no wound. Had I already bled so much I'd lost feeling in my body? Was I dying? I put my hand to the side of my head and brought it away, sticky and red. Gory tendrils of hair clung to my fingers, some with scraps of flesh still attached to their roots. 
beneath the slick of scarlet. The hair was blonde. I stared for a moment, unsure what I was looking at, and then understanding struck me. A terrible heat rushed up my throat, and I fell to my knees and vomited into the bedding that was already ruined. There was blood in the vomit as well. I spit out several broken teeth. When I had my breath back, I probed the inside of my mouth with my tongue and found a horrible, acrid taste, but no teeth missing. They were Mabel's teeth, Mabel's hair, Mabel's blood, seeping into my mattress. I looked up and saw her in the corner of the room, her face in shadow. What do you want? I said, my voice ragged where sickness had scoured my throat. Never speak to a ghost. Never ask their business. I knew these admonitions well, and yet it was Mabel. I couldn't treat her as an unwelcome visitor, as a trespasser. Even with what was left of her brain staining the bodice of her wedding dress, she was still beautiful. She was still the woman I loved. Mabel reached out to me, her pale hand beckoning. I took a step toward her. Hester! My mother's voice snapped through the air like a whip. I flinched with my whole body as I turned reflexively to look at her, knowing even as I did so that when I looked back, Mabel would be gone. Still, I cried out when I saw her absence. I just wanted her near me no matter what profane thing she had become. I had almost touched her hand and I wanted her back her skin on mine, even if it was cold. Instead of soothing me, my mother asked, What did you do? My face, already hot with sorrow, grew hot with shame. Me? I protested. I didn't do anything. What have I told you? This was my mother's version of a vicious scolding, she didn't like to repeat herself. Instead, she'd make me do it, recalling her past admonitions and listing the ways I had failed. I hesitated, but the set of her jaw demanded a reply. Not to speak to the dead. She shook her head. You did more than speak to that thing, she said. You brought it here. What does it want? Hearing her call Mabel it made my throat fill with bile again, but I forced it down. I don't know, I said. I don't know what she wants. Maybe she has a message for her mother or her husband or... No, said my mother. It didn't come to them. It came to you. Why? I was silent. But a possible answer flickered across my mind, and my mother must have seen it in my eyes. She stepped closer. My mother almost never touched me, but now her hand wrapped around my wrist, digging in like a thorny vine. What did you do? 
I haven't done anything since she died, I protested, which was as good as a confession. She didn't even ask again, just sank her fingers deeper into the flesh of my arm. I could have sworn her fingernails were scraping bone. Hissing between my teeth, I gasped, A spell. I I did a spell. What kind of spell? A love spell. My face burned at the admission. I just wanted to... She shoved my hand away as if it disgusted her. Idiot child. She said, her voice thick with a rage I'd never heard before. I just wanted her to care about me a little. I said miserably. I didn't bring her back from the dead. My anguish quelled her fury not at all. Idiot, she said again. Do you know why love magic is so volatile? I searched my memory but could find no answer. Because you can never be certain of another human heart. If you cast a love spell on one who loves you already. I caught my breath at the words. Then this is the result. A passion that runs to madness, obsession, even death. Death? How did Mabel die? Her horse threw her, I said, my voice weak. On the mountain trail, it came back to town riderless, and they, they, found, they, they found her. I hadn't seen what Mabel's body looked like at the bottom of that hill, but I'd imagined it enough to have nightmares. Really? My mother smiled with no joy in it. She was a strong rider, was she not? And her horse was steady. Since we were children, I said. She loved that horse. Perhaps she wasn't thrown at all, my mother said. Perhaps she leapt from the peak herself. I shook my head. No, no, stop it, that's not true. But I could see it in my mind. Mabel crying, Mabel falling. What if it was true? What if my spell had caused her death? that I was no better than a murderer. Perhaps you'll think twice when next you want to abuse your power, my mother said. So she wants revenge? I whispered. Oh no, my mother said. It's much worse. She loves you still. She'll drag you to the grave with her and beyond. Eat your soul in pieces if you let her just to be close to you. She stared at me with cold eyes. If you want to live, you'll have to break the spell. I don't want to, I thought. But I said nothing. In the awful gray hour before sunrise, when the night was at its bleakest, my mother and I went back to Mabel's grave. I can tell you what must be done, but I can't help you. My mother reminded me. You set this thing in motion, and only you can bring it to an end. So I carried everything. The candle, the herbs, the silver bowl, and the knife. 
I'd shed blood to ensnare Mabel's heart, and before morning I'd need to shed more to release her. Mabel waited for us, perched atop her gravestone with her legs folded up underneath her, like a child sits to listen to a story. I could see things crawling in the shattered side of her face, scavengers in the ruins. Hester, she said, her voice so ugly now as insects chewed away her vocal cords, but still sweet as a summer breeze to me. Don't speak to it, my mother said. Averting my eyes, I knelt in the grass and began the spell. I had to do everything in reverse of the first enchantment, casting the circle counterclockwise and sprinkling the herbs in the opposite order. Mabel tiptoed closer as I did, watching carefully. I could smell her, like wildflowers and rot. I spoke the incantation backwards and gestured a casting off. Can you see? my mother asked. As soon as she said the words, I could, not precisely see with my eyes, but perceive a sort of tingling umbilicus of energy between myself and Mabel. It connected us not at our hearts, but at our guts, tying us together just above the navel. The magic I'd woven with my first love spell was bright and uneven, a thread spun by a child, but braided together with it, with something older and stronger and smoother, something that had grown between us without my ever knowing it. For a moment I simply stared, amazed by both the delicacy and the resilience of our bond. It had existed for years, and I'd tried to craft a new one from scratch, not knowing what was already there. Without a word, my mother pointed to the knife. Gritting my teeth, I brought the blade to the inside of my forearm and opened a gash. Blood pooled in the wound, dripped down to my wrist and into the bowl below. I swallowed the groan of pain that threatened to break free the same time I felt, or sensed, or heard the cord between Mabel and me beginning to split, to fray. Esther, no, said Mabel in her pitiful croak. We can still be together. Isn't that what you want? Ignore it, my mother shouted. But how could I? Her voice was small and far away, even though she was shouting. Mabel's hoarse whisper was close and strong, as if it came from inside my own body. You married someone else, I said. What else could I have done, she pleaded. It doesn't matter anymore. You can come with me where he can't follow us. We can be together always. I love you, Hester. If only ever loved you. A sob bloomed in my throat. I love you. When she smiled, I could see between her smashed and rotten teeth to the dead muscle of her tongue, eaten to lace by whatever had taken up residence in her skull.
It didn't matter. I still wanted to kiss her. Come with me, she said. A hint of green flashed in her ruined eye socket. As if something were taking root there, new life feeding on her decay. She held out her hand, palm up, and I reached to take it. No, Hester, my mother said, what she's inviting you to is purgatory. An eternity, banished from both life and death. It's an abomination. Is that really what you want? I closed my eyes. My fingers brushed Mabel's cold wrist. Yes, I breathed. I wanted that. If it meant I could be with Mabel. If it meant never letting her go. I'd accept any fate, however unnatural. But I didn't want it for her. Instead of taking Mabel's hand, I grabbed the silver bowl. I looked away from her face, but not so quickly. I didn't see the hurt in her eyes. I take back what springs from my own heart, I shouted before I could lose my courage, and I drained the blood from the bowl in one long gulp. The taste of my own blood, hot and salt and metal, nearly choked me, but I made myself swallow and swallow, clenching my jaw against gagging. Mabel let out a howl of indignation, but it was too late. The tether between us snapped as I swallowed the last of the blood. Before her cry had faded from the air, Mabel was gone. At peace, I hoped. I pressed my hands to my own belly, where the cord had been. My stomach throbbed like something had been ripped out of me. I expected to feel blood, but there was none, except what was already drying on my arm and the mineral taste that coated my tongue. It's done, my mother said quietly. As the sun came up, I laid my head down in the grass and finally, finally wept. I didn't care who heard me any more. The grave of the woman who'd once loved me drank my tears like the morning dew. That was Lindsay King Miller's Elegy for Mabel O'Malley, as read by our good friend and longtime narrator with the show, Josie Babin. Living in that formerly abandoned house on the corner, the one across the street from the cemetery, the one with all those cats lounging about, you will find Josie happily narrating horror stories. No one has seen her human companion lately, but the cats do look well-fed. Not that those things have anything to do with one another. In between stories, she works on a long list of house projects and car projects. 
but best of all she gets to work on lab projects, growing cells into medicine, hopefully making the world a little healthier in the not-so-far-off future. If you're ever in San Diego, stop by to say hi. She'll introduce you to her cats. Thank you so much, Josie, for joining us for this episode and for being one of our longest-standing narrators. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique, and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Our second tale tonight comes from the pen of one of our favorite voices and regular fixture here on Tales to Terrify, Christy Nogle. Christy Nogle is a member of the Horror Writers Association and Codex Writers Group. She teaches college composition and lives in Boise, Idaho, with her partner Jim and their dogs and cats. You can read her most recent and upcoming stories at Vastarian, Synth, an anthology of dark science fiction, and Flame Tree Publishing's American Gothic Anthology. You can read more of her work at christynogle.com or follow her on Twitter at christynogle. Listen with me, children of the night, to Christy Nogle's Cocooning, first published in Three-Lobed Burning Eye, 2020. Thank you. 
Six months ago, we were doing planks and push-ups and eating perfect at every meal. Now me and Donnie are lucky to make it around the block a couple times after dinner. That's it for the day, and only on the weekdays, just so the dogs don't get too hyper while we're at work. It's fall. Feels good to let go. Leaves are taking over the yard. There's poo to clean up if anyone cared to look, but we don't look. We're too busy streaming horror movies and eating pasta and cinnamon rolls all weekend. Donnie must be sneaking Halloween candy, too, because the bag's going down. We can turn the lights off and go to bed at eight on Halloween for all I care. Might be nice to have a good snuggle. We're so cocooned. It takes us a week to notice it's not just us. That there's something up in the neighborhood. One day I put towels over the bathroom mirror and take the hanging ones out, and just a few days later, everyone's big mirrors are leaning against the trash cans. It reminds me of when everybody got flat-screen TVs and dumped all the thick ones on the curb. Those blocky TVs were more than useless. They rubbed you the wrong way, like the mirrors do now. It's just too dark in the house to see things right. That's what I tell Donnie. When it's dark and you look in a mirror, things seem to crawl and shift. Or if you've had a drink or three, you might think you look extra sexy. Or when you try to cut your own hair, all the motions are off. Mirrors are strange. They've never been exactly right, and now they're a little more wrong is all. And we don't need them. We feel how strong and tight our bodies are getting. We feel our nails and our hair growing thicker and stronger. The lines in our chests and hands smoothing out. The spots on Donnie's arms are just a memory. Mr. and Gracie sprawl and snore at either end of the sectional. We make calzones. Shortbread. Big breakfasts for dinner. All winter we feel warm and full and good. Donnie's the first to think we might be gone to heaven. But he's the first to let go of that idea, too. He moves on to other theories that the guys cook up at work. A lot of those guys live in our neighborhood, but some of them don't. Which gets them all wondering about things like how far it's spread. But there's nothing on the news about it. Nothing online. Oh, we still work and shop for groceries and pay the bills. Everybody keeps eating and pooping, that's for sure. Everything's easier than it should be, though. Work goes fast. Me and my friends have a nice lunch every day. The appliances don't blow out. Pay lasts the month. Nobody's got car trouble. We don't get any unexpected calls from our parents. Donnie's moved on to other theories, but I think we just might be in heaven. Up until Donnie catches his thumb on the truck door, the nail turns black and keeps hurting him. That wouldn't happen in heaven. We figure something's coming, and finally in spring some gals in rubber suits come and ransack the house. 
One of them keeps us on the couch the whole time and says how after the rest is done, she'll turn the couch over and go through the batting. They keep saying how gross the dog hair is every time they lift something up. It's maybe the most humiliating thing to ever happen to me. They make fun of Donnie's comics and his books. They make fun of our food. The dogs are kenneled up. They bark a while. But they settle when Donnie uses his big voice. Squeak under their breath for a bit to let you know they're still nervous. They're stuck in these cages, but they still want to protect us. It's pitiful. It takes hours. I beg the one gal to sit us on the back porch a while because it's so nice out. There are people on the patio across the way, and we see the ones in suits rushing around their outbuildings. Some wear green suits, some pale pink. Donnie presses the side of his leg against mine and rubs my knuckles. He thinks we're going to die. It never occurred to me, but I see in his face he already went there. I don't know. When they're finished, I don't think they'll just go. I'm not stupid, but I don't know what'll happen. I say, I was thinking we ought to get chocolate chip mint and pink peppermint and put a scoop of each on top of a brownie and then make Kara's ganache recipe. I think it's dark chocolate and butter or whipped cream. Keep going says Donnie, and I talk about topping it with toffee chips and salt and black walnuts. Your yard's real pretty, says the gal. She walks a little away, tips her helmet up and spits on the ground, and Donnie and me squeeze each other's hands because that means it's not something that'll kill you. She wouldn't take her helmet off. The old guy to the north of us whispers over the fence, what do you know? But she's coming back, so we don't answer. I said real pretty, she says. The grass is patchy but soft and bright. The crocus bed is up and some of the tulips. Thanks, I say. She rocks back on her heels and says, Yeah, I really like what you've done with all the dog shit. I get that rush to grab her by the scruff and drag her off my property. But I can't do that, and that's what finally makes me afraid. She's slouching back, smirking, looking from side to side. The chemicals pumping through my blood turn to poison, and I'm cold all through. The gal takes out a compact. She pushes her helmet back, and she's gorgeous. So gorgeous she has a boy's haircut just to rub it in. She checks her mascara. Gets hot in the suit, she says, and... Hey, you want to use this? She gestures like she's going to throw the mirror to me and chuckles and goes inside. They leave us outside for two minutes and know we won't run. There are too many of them. When they move us to the van, Donnie has my hand. He's saying, Where are our dogs? He lets go of me, pulling toward the house. But a man comes on one side of him and a bigger gal on the other. They put him in the back row of seats and I slide in beside him. 
The dogs whimper from their kennels in the back. We poke our fingers through the bars and pet their noses. We see the vans sitting in driveways all the way out of town. Then we're on the highway for a good half hour, just complying our butts off. Compliance is key, they told us back at the start of this thing. So we love on the dogs and keep holding hands and answering their questions. Anyone can see I am complying a little better than Donnie, who's starting to quake. He asks questions of his own and they don't answer. Out past Hammett, the gal in the shotgun seat says she's hungry. Is there anywhere good to eat? Well, I say, and not ten minutes later she's coming out with sacks of chicken bacon ranch sandwiches and nests of garlic fries and small-sized drinks for everybody. I taste something in my drink, but Donnie doesn't. He's too nervous to eat, but he's grateful for the root beer and drinks it down. I sip on my diet cherry pop and eat a few bites of sandwich before I go out. But before that, I feel his hand go slack in mine, and I'm happy he won't be nervous anymore. My arm feels heavy where I'm resting it on the kennel, and then I can't keep my eyes open. I concentrate on the motion of the van building speed for the freeway. Don't open your eyes, Donnie says. Just lie still. I do open them. How can someone wake up without doing that? But I can't see much of anything. I close them again and remember what happened. We're spooning in a bed that's softer than we'd like. I'm the little spoon. I've got such a headache, I say. He feels my eyes to make sure they're closed. It's the stress, he says, and hugs me to him and then rubs my shoulders too hard. I hear the dogs breathing on the floor. Where are we? I say, and Donnie whispers for a long time about the room and what he saw earlier. He says the room is plain and white, about twenty feet square. The dogs? I say. The dogs are fine. Don't they sound fine? Here, puppy, he says and makes a smoochy noise. Gracie jumps up to us. Now she's the little spoon. I sink my hand into her rough poodle coat. Donnie says there's a table with padded chairs like in a motel room, and that's all the furniture. It's not entirely dark. A blue nightlight hangs mid-ceiling. Oh, and there are mirrors on three of the walls. Big mirrors, like on TV. The kind that have people watching from back of them. We move in and out of conversation, in and out of sleep. We talk for the first time about how all of this started. A crawling in the mirror, just when it was dim or dark. We saw things there that we didn't like seeing. That's why we covered up the medicine cabinet. Just that one at first, then the one in the hall. But it wasn't really that noticeable, was it? We didn't like mirrors, and we maybe felt a little bit better than normal was all. I keep thinking the sun will come up. But after a while, Mr. starts to squeak, and then Gracie is pawing at me. Somebody makes a skunk fart. 
It's still dark and Donnie finally says there's no window, just another big mirror behind the bed. Good morning, calls some man through a speaker. Okay if we walk the dogs now. Why are we here? yells Donnie. We'd like to go outdoors too, I say. Okay to walk the dogs now, he says, and Donnie must nod because the dogs are running towards the sound off to the left, and then they're gone from the room. There's a restroom behind the bed on your right. Feel for the door, the man says from the speaker. Feel free. And a gal comes on. You ought to take a shower, too. I catch the first cackle of a bunch of people before she must turn the speaker off, and it's quiet again. The light is blue, very low. We're fine if we keep our eyes down. No mirror in the bathroom, so it feels more normal in there. Sometimes we make it in the shower and sit on the floor afterward, not wanting to go back to the bedroom. There's plenty of water, but they aren't feeding us much. Just vending machine sandwiches twice a day. Once in a while, a candy bar. They leave it on the table by the door when we sleep. They sent in bleach one time in a paper cup with a straw. Another time, gasoline. I screamed and beat on the walls when they first sent in things like that. But now I just flush it. I don't like it going into the water supply, but it's that or let it stink the place up. I thought they were doping the dogs, but Donnie says no. The dogs are just depressed because we aren't doing anything. With no TV and no light and no good food or walkies, I've pretty well soured on the cocooning myself. I want to move now. I get down and do some push-ups and try to do some plank moves and burpees and things like that. It's tough with no music to keep going. It starts to burn, and I've got nothing but the burn to hold on to. And I keep at it, longer and longer. One time I stand by the door and beg them to take the dogs away somewhere. My parents' place if they can, or just somewhere. Even a shelter. They're cuties. They do all right. Donnie tells me no. Stop it. The dogs are better off here. He pulls me back on the bed and shushes me with his hand. But there's nothing wrong with the dogs. Whatever's going to happen to us doesn't need to happen to them. We're not stupid. We know we've been infected by something. Some alien thing or some government thing. An experiment. An attack. It makes no difference now. Things like this happen. It just feels unfair to be the ones it's happening to. Donnie wonders if it was in the food, or a meteor that came down near town, or it came on the little feet of mice. He sleeps more than I do. He says he has no hope anymore, though he'll keep hopeful for me if I say he should, and I say of course he should. Donnie has a good ten years on me, harder years too, and I've always assumed I'm headed toward a life without him. We don't have any kids, just the dogs. It was noticeable if we'd cared to notice, he says. Maybe, I say. 
We just wanted to stay happy as long as we could, he says. One time when Donnie's sleeping, I look into the mirror long and hard. Couldn't explain why, not if you tortured me. I spoon behind him until I'm sure he's out. Then I stand and open my eyes. At first, it's just a shifting, shimmering movement too small to notice. My face, I know I'm holding it still, but it's moving slightly, crawling around the jaw. Then the mouth smiles and stretches tight. The motion's just enough to bring on that alarmed feeling that made us cover the mirrors in the first place. I start to see some things about my insides. Movements under my skin. Muscles. Heart. Ribs. I lift my arm and see the motions at every point. All these arms stuck in the air between the place where my arm was and the place where it is. And a big dark cave where my guts ought to be. The mirror's telling me something true that no one else can see. I'm hot and weak when I finally look away. I go on my stomach for the cool floor, not far from Mr. After a while, I feel cool and slide closer to him. He's a husky border collie mix. Soft fur smelling of dander and the dirt from outside this place. I hug him into my belly and he sighs. I close my eyes. He's a special dog. Always so cute. His black and white patterns partly ordered like his mom's were and partly wild like his daddy's. Ice blue eyes. He was always special because of his looks, but later it was because he was so smart and good. I worried about him all the time when he was a puppy. I'd jump in and save him from every little thing. That's why he's such a baby now. Paranoid, Donnie says. I swear I can almost read Mr.'s mind sometimes, and my goodness he's unhappy now. Restless and stir-crazy and hopeless. He thinks he did something wrong and we're punishing him. In the space between my belly and his back, I feel something I've never felt before. Something between warmth and bubbles popping. I hug him real tight and keep thinking I should let go now. I really should, but there's less and less of him to let go of. I'm on my back now, pushing his jaw down into my chest. I see clear as day, my body from the waist down, my abs, white boxers, thighs all blue in the light. From my ribs up is the white fur, a furry paw sticking out near my sternum. His jawbone under my hand. And then just my chest bones under my hand. He's gone! He's not, of course. He's part of me now. In the minute it took to take him into me, he never fought, never made a peep. I feel him waking up now, and he doesn't panic. He doesn't struggle.
He's warm and safe inside me and knows it. He's energized, plotting because he knows a lot more now and he still wants to protect me. He's grateful. I'm grateful too at first, but the feeling starts to come that I've done something wrong. I don't care about the people behind the mirrors, but I don't want Donnie to know. I want to run. I've never felt caged in my life until just this second. Donnie's still asleep. I rush to the shower. The water wakes him up, of course, and he's asking why I'm in there, and I say I got too hot. There's only a little blood, a couple dark drops that the water washes away. When I sleep, I dream that I ate Mr. Every bit of him, bones and fur and teeth and gristle, watching myself in the mirror the whole time. I dream that when I went into the shower, I left a slick of blood I had to lap up afterward. But that isn't what happened at all. It's a bad time for Donnie and me. I keep worrying the people behind the mirrors will say something about what I did with Mr., but they never do. I tell Donnie they let the dogs out, and then he just didn't come back in with Gracie, and maybe they sent him someplace better. Donnie paces. He's mad at me because I was the one who told him to send the dog away. He won't let Gracie out again. He cleans up her messes with toilet paper and flushes them and swears at the guy on the speaker. A bad time. Once he hurls something into the mirrors. He peeks just for a second and says there's no room behind the mirror. I happen to have my eyes open when he says it, and it's true. Behind the broken glass is just a wall. With Mr. Inside Me making me stronger, I look in the mirrors any time I want. My hair is different in the mirror, eyes glowing pale blue. My head has that tilt, and if I look a long time, Mr.'s face comes in more. It's good to see him. Donnie doesn't say I'm any different. When I pull pieces of my hair around to look, they're dark and plain, same as always. One time I'm looking in the mirror and the door opens. Donnie's asleep, and even if he was up, he wouldn't look. It's the gorgeous one with the short hair, wearing a doctor's coat, leaning in from a bright hallway. She smiles, and the second I start towards her, she clicks the door shut. Another time, she says through the speaker, Why didn't you do this earlier? Do what, you crazy bitch? Donnie yells, even though he knows I don't like that word. Gracie's scratching at the door, and Donnie jumps up to drag her to the shower. He's trying to train her to go in there so he can hose it down. She whimpers. Just let her outside, I say. Maybe they'll take her someplace better. Donnie puts his face right up against mine. They killed Mr. They didn't, I say. I can't remember the last time we had a real blowout. I usually try to make up right away. I'm doing that now. Please, you're right, and please calm down, on and on like that. I smell that Gracie's done her business and rush in to take care of it. 
I don't know if my cleaning it up will make him matter, but probably not. It'll probably soften him. The stress poo is so nasty, but I wipe it with the toilet paper and water and hose off the shower and clean it all again with a little dot of shampoo. I wash my hands and feet and dry them before I come back into the room. It's to the point in the fight where if Donnie pushes, I'll start getting real mad. But if he lets go, we can make up. And he's dying to let go, I see it. He's on the end of the bed. He holds out his arms, and I go to him. We hold each other. His face is in my belly, and I start to feel warm tingles there. I'm looking sideways into the mirror and see his eyes are open, looking straight up at me. What the hell are you doing? He says. I move away and come around the bed, get under the covers. Gracie jumps up and tucks into a ball between us. What were you doing? He says. We can take Gracie someplace better, I say. She hasn't been groomed forever, and I have my hands deep in her rough fur. I don't know what Donnie thinks I'm doing to her, but he starts to pull her like he's booting her off the bed. I'm already falling into her, covering her with my chest and arms. Come, take part of her, I say. But he's off the bed now, just watching. It's fast and clean as can be. Just a few drops of brownish blood on my T-shirt and the covers, and that rush of thankful feeling again. I'm frozen there in the rush of her. Everything's frozen in place. I'll get this cleaned up, I say, and I go off to scrub the bedspread before the stain sets. When I get back, he's at the end of the bed, head in his hands. What do you look like to yourself? In the mirror, I mean, he says. I don't answer, because he's still mad. The room feels cool with no covers and nobody to curl up to. I do a few squats, turn to the mirror. If I just glance and do not focus, I think I see what Donnie sees. Me like I've always been, but better. Everything tight, skin clear with good color, my plain dark hair somehow glossy. I close my eyes. If I look long and hard, I see what we're becoming, I say. You're making it happen faster, Donnie says. It's true. Whatever life we thought we'd enjoy just a little while longer, it must be over now. Gracie's just beginning to wake up in me, and I'm already hungry for something more. We ought to be out in the streets now. This rest has done me good, but some kind of struggle is what I need. Some kind of work. You should be looking, too, I say. It isn't bad. I'm thinking of the two of us breaking out together. How will we ever get home? He asks. We won't be going home, I say. But as long as we're together... He's heartbroken. He's thought about dying, but he hasn't thought about living and not going home. We're all made up, just like that. 
but he's ruined. He's like Mister was before I saved him. Sad and mopey. All the will gone out of him. It's hard to touch Donnie now without taking him. The fluttery warm feeling starts six inches ahead of the touch, like static. He says he has nothing. No one but me. No home. His hope went a while ago, and now he can't even touch me. I should take him. Can you? He asks. He's nice enough to pretend the thought hasn't occurred to me. If it happens, I want you to look in the mirror right after, he says. See if you see me. He's scared, but he's not the type to delay things. He takes off his T-shirt and moves me to his lap. I take my shirt off, too, and all at once I'm thinking how much bigger he is and how he must be hungrier than I am, and I'm scared. I feel his arms around my back, and we're kissing lightly, chest to chest. The last time we tried it in the shower, not too long ago, we couldn't find my opening. It's gone. I have my whole hand reaching around in my boxers for it, but it isn't there. Still, the static feeling stops, and the tingly bubbles-popping feeling doesn't get stronger, and there are still two of us. We're grateful. We make out for a while and do a couple of things, take another shower and spend a long time getting dry. We sleep right after. I'm the little spoon, but I'm on his side of the bed, which makes me think as I drift off how that never happened before. I dream of eating him all up, of course, just like with Mister. I never had that dream with Gracie. She brought doggy dreams like the ones you imagine when you see them yipping and wiggling their feet. But I have the same nightmare all over again for Donnie. Gnawing at the bones and licking all over the floor. It's so gross and goes on such a long time. And when I wake, I feel that guilt all over again. That I've done something wrong. I'm alone on the bed, and Donnie isn't in the bathroom. I'm pacing around, thinking they took him and then knowing. It was me. I took him. I have the guilt again, but it isn't fair, because I don't feel him inside me. No good feeling to push back the hurt. I'm about to finally lose it, and then I look into the mirror. I focus until the being there shifts and shimmers. It isn't me exactly, or Gracie, Mr. or Donnie, but it's something of all of us, with a gaping cave in its belly. And it reaches, not close to the ceiling, that would be an exaggeration, but it reaches higher than it has any right to. My arms and legs, if I look down at them, if I'm honest, they're not mine. They're Donnie's. It was him that got me. Only I don't think of it that way. Not at all. I think of it this way. We're strong now and good. We'll tear apart the corner of the room, 
the corner where the door is, tear with our teeth, with our claws. Just as soon as I think of it, we're doing it. Splinters in our mouth, something chalky. We're whining as we squeeze through the opening. We smell the outdoors and long to be there, but before we go, we take a right turn down a bright hallway. We pass a kitchen so bright our eyes sting, smelling of food and drink and people, and more of the dirt from outdoors. Oh, my God, the things we smell. Our mouth is dripping wet, and we come to the end of the hall. The gorgeous girl stands by a locker, turns and gasps, and this time it's not a dream. We take her neck in our sharp teeth. We shake her, one, two, three, and drop her just as a man runs into the room. We take him by the neck, and our mouth tastes the two distinct flavors of their rich, salty blood. It's the most sensation we've ever experienced. We test the flesh of his cheek and find it tough and tender, like nothing so much as sucking at our own wound. With a bit of guilt, we let the meat slip out of our mouth. We turn toward another man, much older. We know this one is good. Is it his scent or his wakeful eyes? The way he holds his hands in surrender. We take this one in that other way. So fast. Just a pressing into him and the rush of him waking into us. He is grateful. And he, too, is hungry. The city outside is a small one, deserted at twilight. We know this place. It occurs to us that we have a good car parked forty feet away. It will feel better to walk the streets, or run. How long since we've run? The people are all holed up behind curtains. A glowing cartoon character blanket hangs on a window many floors up. It means that room never had a curtain. It means the people are hiding from something. We aren't curious. After all, we've been commuting to work all through the crisis and listening to NPR just about three hours a day, not to mention what we've learned through the observations and consultations at the center, not to mention what we learned from friends and family. We know what the scientists know. And we know what their kooky relatives know. And none of it is good. But it doesn't make any difference. In any case, there is always someone who thinks he can sneak out after curfew. Or if there isn't a straggler, well, doors are our playthings. It doesn't matter what's happened because we'll all be together. So many of us now. Getting stronger and smarter. We'll do our work at twilight, and it will warm us through the cold hours. Sometimes, in the days to come, we'll feel that we might have done something wrong. But we'll tell ourselves, no, we've done right, and list all of the ways we've been right. Indeed, righteous. The voices will be so good and so strong and so many, that we'll believe them. Sometimes we feel sorry we can never go home again, but the word comes to us, Herreith, 
a name for that feeling. We have known the word for many years. We heard it on a radio show. Learned it from our grandmother. A word we just recently learned. The many beasts in us. Those who never knew language until now, they find this word especially poignant. And so, when we think of home, we think of Hareith, and a memory of our nests, and our mates, and our littermates warms us. We mourn for our lost homes as we celebrate the new home we've taken in ourselves. Our body when we glance in a mirror, is Donnie's fine, middle-aged body, shirtless and sweaty, his grisly beard and thick salt-and-pepper hair grown to his shoulder blades. When we look longer, and by now we have to stand before a mirrored skyscraper at dusk to see our height, we are something else entirely. That was Christy Nogle's Cocooning, as read by Nicole Doolin. Nicole is a writer and voice actor. She performs for a number of popular and award-winning podcasts, such as the No Sleep Podcast, Far-Fetched Fables, and, of course, Tales to Terrify. To learn more about Nicole, visit her website at NicoleDoolin.com. It's great to hear from you again, Nicole. Thanks for joining us for this milestone. Our final tale this evening comes from a longtime contributor and Tales to Terrify fan favorite, Tim Wagoner. Tim Wagoner's first novel came out in 2001, and he's published close to 50 novels and seven collections of short stories since. He writes original fantasy and horror, as well as media tie-ins. His novels include Like Death, considered a modern classic in the genre, and the popular Necropolis series of urban fantasy novels. He's written tie-in fiction for Supernatural, Alien, Grimm, The X-Files, Doctor Who, A Nightmare on Elm Street, and Transformers, among others. His articles on writing have appeared in Writer's Digest, Writer's Journal, and Writer's Workshop of Horror. He's won the Bram Stoker Award and been a finalist for the Shirley Jackson Award, the Scribe Award, and the Splatterpunk Award. In addition to writing, Tim is also a full-time tenured professor who teaches creative writing and composition at Sinclair College. Listen with me, children of the night, to Tim Wagoner's The Garden of Love is Green. A Tales to Terrify Anniversary Episode Exclusive
Brenton stands in moonlight, night air cool on his exposed skin, bare feet and grass. The blades gently stroke his flesh, and he smiles. I love you too. It's 3 a.m., and he's standing in the middle of his backyard wearing only a pair of gray satin shorts. They're all he ever sleeps in, regardless of the season. He's looking down, marveling at how the moon makes the separate blades seem like thousands of tiny silver sculptures. The six-foot-tall white wood fence that encloses the yard glows in the moonlight, a frame, he imagines, for a work of art titled Night and Silence. Except the grass isn't silent, is it? Never has been, not for him. He hears a multitude of small voices speaking as one. To anyone else, it would sound like an almost inaudible breath of wind if they heard it at all. Brenton had no trouble hearing it, of course. He closes his eyes and listens, opening himself to the meaning contained within those strange, soft syllables. He has no idea how long he stands like this, waiting for some sense of meaning to make itself known to him. But at last it does and his eyes open. He knows what he needs to do. He walks to the gate, unlatches it, the ground is slightly sloped here, and the door swings open by itself, and steps through. He heads for the wooden shed where the lawn equipment is stored. It's less than twenty feet from the gate, and he reaches it within seconds. There's a padlock on the door, although it isn't necessary. He lives in a safe neighborhood, and besides, who would want to steal weed trimmers, edgers, leaf blowers, and wheelbarrows? Still better safe than sorry. He has a pair of objects in the pockets of his shorts, one of which is the key to the shed. He uses it to unlock the padlock and then opens the door. It creaks, and as he always does, he tells himself to remember to oil the hinges next time he comes here. Not that there will be a next time. Moonlight spills into the shed, illuminating the reason for the padlock. Now this is worth stealing. The push mower. Brenton would never resort to something as gauche and impersonal as a riding mower. Not on his grass. Cost him in excess of $500 and was worth every penny. It has a powerful, easy-to-start motor. Optimized airflow for superior mulching. Four cutting surfaces that create extra fine clippings. And a smart drive system that matches the user's stride. Only the best for his lawn. He tucks the key back into his pocket, wheels the mower outside, and checks to make sure it's gassed up. He keeps the tank topped off, but he always checks anyway. Satisfied, he replaces the gas cap and pushes the mower through the gate and into the backyard. He stops then, regards the grass, frowns. For the first time since he and Charlene moved into this house, well over forty years ago now, someone beside him had mowed the lawn, a service that Charlene hired. And while they didn't do a terrible job, they were, by Brenton's standards, sloppy. The blades were uneven, the cut pieces only partially mulched, and there were several spots they missed mowing altogether. Disgraceful. He hears the voice that his many voices speak once more, and this time he has no trouble understanding its meaning. We do not blame you. Now begin. He primes the gas, pushes the power button, and the motor roars to life. The sound cuts through the night's quiet, like a chorus of angry chainsaws, but he finds the noise sweet, soothing, even. He then removes the second object from the pocket of his shorts, a roll of black electrical tape. 
He wraps a tape around the mower's safety shutoff lever to hold it down so that the motor won't cut out while he does what he needs to do next. He carefully tilts the mower on its side, exposing its whirling blades. He watches them for a moment, transfixed by their wavering blur of motion. Then he kneels. The grass speaks once more. Come to us. Brenton leans his head forward. Stop moping. Brenton responded to his wife without looking at her. I'm not. He stood on the wooden deck at the back of his house, arms crossed over his chest, scowling. The yard was only half mown, and the sight of it filled him with a level of anger, approaching rage. He didn't like to leave a job unfinished, and he'd never abandoned his yard like this before. He could feel his heart attempt to beat faster, but the new beta blocker he was on kept it restrained. You should be inside resting, Charlene said. Three days ago, he'd been out there, pushing the mower, listening to the grass, sigh in contentment as he trimmed it, when he suddenly felt short of breath and his pulse skyrocketed. Less than an hour later, he was in a hospital bed, hooked up a heart monitor, and waiting to get an MRI. Minor tachycardia, the doctor had pronounced once the test was over. She prescribed the beta blocker and told him to follow up with his family physician in a few days. And no more mowing the lawn, she said, not with a push mower anyway. You're too old for that shit. Old? He was only 66 for Christ's sake. As soon as he'd come home from the hospital, he'd wanted to go into the backyard and finish mowing. If you're determined to make your heart explode, I won't stop you, Charlene had said. Just don't expect me to call an ambulance this time. Had she meant it? Maybe. Probably. Charlene went back inside to call a lawn service to finish the task he could no longer perform. He continued standing on the deck until they arrived, and then he retreated into the house and didn't come back out until they were done. When Brenton was a child, his family lived on a farm. Brenton, along with his five siblings, was expected to do chores and a lot of them, but whenever he got a chance, which wasn't often, he liked to lie on the grass in the backyard, gaze up at the clouds, and relax. He was eleven when he first heard the grass speak to him. It was a hot August afternoon. He'd just finished helping his dad fix the tractor. Mostly he handed tools to dad whenever he asked for them, and he was drenched with sweat. Drops rolled off his skin, fell to the grass, were absorbed. He could feel the dampness being leached from his shirt and jeans, pooled into the ground, greedily swallowed. It was an odd sensation, one which he supposed should have been disturbing, but which he found strangely comforting, almost intimate. He listened to the whisperings rising and falling cadence, found it so soothing he had to fight to keep from drifting off asleep. There were no words, none that he could discern anyway, but there were emotions, and these created pictures in his mind. He saw the god-demon sun blasting down its unrelenting heat for days, weeks, without a single drop of rain falling from the sky. He saw the grass's green fade, become yellow, then almost entirely bleached of color. Lastly, he saw himself lying on the ground, watering the grass with the moisture from his own body. When the images faded, he was left with a warm, almost loving sensation inside which his mind translated as, Thank you. The next time the family went into town, Brenton visited the library and checked out a book on plant life. He read the chapter on grass and ignored the rest of it. 
That night at dinner, he attempted to share what he learned. Did you know that grass developed 60 million years ago during the Cretaceous period? It's one of the strongest, most versatile plants, and it can live in rainforests, deserts, and cold climates. It even lives in some parts of Antarctica. His family was usually silent while they ate, and they barely looked at him as he spoke. His mother gave him a quick glance and a half-smile. That's nice, dear. He wanted to tell them more about what he learned, but there was no point. They might hear him, but they wouldn't listen to him. That night, he had a dream. He stood in the middle of a sea of grass, an endless field stretching outward in all directions, blades almost as tall as he was. The sun hung high above, huge and hot, and warm winds stirred the grass, made it ripple and sway like currents of green water. This time, when the grass spoke, he understood every word. We've been waiting a long time for someone to hear us, Brenton. Someone like you. Then the grass closed in around him, wrapped him tight in its embrace, and squeezed until he could no longer breathe. The sensation was alarming at first, but he calmed as his mind began to shut down, and then he knew no more. Brenton would have no memory of this dream once he woke, but it remained with him the rest of his life, always just below the level of conscious thought. July 4th, a couple years later. Every Independence Day, Brenton's family had a big meal outside to celebrate. Afterwards, they played games, and when the sun went down, shoot off illegal fireworks. Brenton liked holidays because they were the only times his family really interacted. The rest of the time, they kept to themselves, and at 13, he was starting to do it too. What was the point of spending time with people who didn't want you around, who didn't want anyone around? One of the games his family played after dinner was lawn darts. These weren't the safe, soft-headed lawn darts of later years. Oh no. These things were murderously dangerous, with thick metal spikes at one end and a plastic handle at the other, with a trio of flared-out flat plastic feathers to help control the flight. The object of the game was to hurl a dart into the air and attempt to land it in the middle of the other team's circle which was defined by a thin, round plastic hoop placed on the ground. Brenton was more than a little intimidated by the darts, especially by how fast his older siblings threw them, so he tended to stay on the sidelines and watch. This year, when it was his older brother Martin's turn to throw, their sister Dora shoved him as a joke. Off balance, he released a dart and it flew high up into the air. And it came straight towards Brenton. Panicked, he ran, hoping to outdistance the dart, but when he glanced back over his shoulder, he realized he was instead running directly into its path. He tried to veer to the left, but his foot caught in a small depression in the ground and his ankle twisted, and he fell face forward into the grass. He lay there an instant, expecting to feel the metal tip of the dart pierce the back of his skull at any moment. But then he felt pressure beneath him, as if a large hand raised up from the ground and gave him a hard shove. He flipped over, onto his back, a split second before the dart thunked into the ground exactly where his head had been. He stared at the dart for a moment, heart pounding, breath caught in his chest. His parents and his siblings were looking at him, none of them speaking or moving. 
He had the feeling that it wouldn't have mattered much to them which way his race against the dart had turned out. Then their paralysis broke, and they came running towards him, shouting, Are you okay? And God damn, boy, you were lucky. But Brent knew luck had nothing to do with it. He reached down and patted the grass, felt its blades brush his palm. He met Charlene when he was 20 and she was 18. She graduated from high school the same year Dora did, and the two of them were friends. He didn't know that, of course. He barely knew his siblings, let alone the people they hung out with at school, and Dora had been two years behind him. After the ceremony, which had taken place on the football field, Dora and Charlene were posing for pictures together, and she caught Brenton's eye, and he caught hers. He wanted to ask her out, but he was too shy. But then he heard the grass urging him to be brave. And when the picture-taking was completed, he walked up to her, introduced himself, and asked if she would like to go with him to see a movie in town sometime. She shocked him when she said yes. He didn't know that her family's farm was failing and that, in the back of her mind at least, she feared being poor and hoped to find a spouse who would help her become financially secure. He had no money, of course, and eventually his brother Stan would inherit the farm. Not that Brenton wanted the damn thing, but Brenton had potential. Or so Charlene hoped, and that movie date led to many more. It was almost two months before they had sex for the first time. It was a late June, and they were down by the lake hidden in the woods, blanket spread out on a small clearing that local kids called Lover's Lawn instead of Lover's Lane. Was the pun purposeful or accidental? No one knew, nor did they care, as long as they had a place to fuck. Brenton and Charlene had fooled around before, of course, and had made each other come in a variety of ways, but they hadn't gone all the way, hadn't done it. Brenton was as nervous as he was excited, and when he entered Charlene for the first time, he expected to feel a closeness, a joining, a merging as the two of them became one. It felt good, great even, but he didn't feel anything inside. No, that wasn't quite right. He didn't feel anything coming from inside her. He leaned his hand close to hers, kissed her, looked deep into her eyes, searched for any sign that there was something in there. But all he saw was another human being enjoying the sensations her body produced. He could have been anyone, could have been a goddamn dildo for that matter, and she would have reacted the same. He tried to pull out of her then, but she grabbed hold of his shoulders, twisted her hips, and flipped him over onto his back and straddled him. The maneuver moved him off the blanket, and Breton's bare back, ass, and legs were pressed against the grass. Charlene rode him hard, shouting her enthusiasm so loud it caused nearby birds to take to the air in alarm. Breton remained quiet and listened to the grass whisper its love as it undulated beneath him. Brenton married Charlene, more because it was expected than out of any real desire to do so. They moved to a new town that wasn't significantly different than the one they'd grown up in, and Brenton found work as a tool and die maker. The job was dull and repetitive, much like farming, but at least he didn't end up with shit-covered shoes at the end of the day. He and Charlene never had children. They never even discussed the matter. One spring day, when he'd been working as a machinist with the same company for 13 years, he decided to take his lunch break outside. It was beautiful, sun warm but not too hot, wind blowing but not too hard. 
He sat on the lawn in front of the building and took off his shoes and socks so he could feel the grass beneath his feet. As he was eating a ham sandwich, Glenn Seiler exited the building. Glenn was his immediate supervisor, a hard, humorless man who had been with the company almost as long as Brenton had been alive. Glenn's upper lip curled into a sneer when he saw Brenton sitting in the grass barefoot. What the hell is wrong with you, Dowlin? You some kind of nature freak or something? Brenton felt the grass stir beneath his feet. It's okay, he thought. The grass stilled, but he could feel its anger towards Glenn burning hot. I like the grass, Brenton said. Glenn snorted. You are a fucking weirdo, Dowling. I'm going to be watching your ass, so shape the fuck up. Glenn walked off, the grass's furious whispers following him. That weekend, Glenn was working in his front yard, edging the grass near the curb. Somehow he tripped, fell, and cracked his head on the curb's concrete surface. He died less than two hours later in the hospital. When Brenton heard about the man's death at work Monday morning, he smiled. As Brenton leans closer to the mower's whirling blades, he digs his fingers into the cool grass. Will this hurt? He thinks. Yes, very much so. That's what I figured. Brenton takes a deep breath, then shoves his face the rest of the way forward. The grass was right. It does hurt. Very, very much. No, I don't know why he did it, and I don't care. I'm just glad he's gone. Yes, I know that sounds terrible, but we were married close to 50 years. That's more than enough time for a woman to put up with any man, don't you think? Especially one that's as empty as Brenton was. Charlene stands on the deck of their, her, house, phone to her ear. She's talking to Brenton's sister, Dora. They've remained close ever since high school, and Dora's long been aware of how dissatisfied Charlene was with her marriage to Brenton. I mean, there just wasn't anything there, you know. Charlene looks at the spot where Brenton shoved his face into the spinning blades of his precious $500 mower. The lawn is still dark there, and she imagines his blood soaking the earth, feeding the grass, nurturing it. A fitting end, really. He cared more about the goddamn grass than anything else in his life. Charlene and Dora talk for a while longer, and when the sun begins to go down, Charlene ends the call and goes inside. A few moments later, Brenton, truly in the grass now, stretches forth new fingers. Blades of grass lengthen, slither up onto the deck like thin green snakes, move toward the patio door and find it unlocked. Brenton isn't surprised. Charlene never remembers to lock the damn thing. His new fingers reach into the kitchen and continue to grow as they feel their way through the house in search of Charlene. Maybe Brenton was emptied during his life. Or maybe no one bothered to take notice of what he did have inside him. Either way, he's full now, full to fucking bursting. And he's going to teach Charlene and everyone else on the goddamn planet an important lesson. The future is green.
That was Tim Wagoner's The Garden of Love is Green, as read by a very familiar voice, one we haven't heard from in a while, the one and only Stephen Kilpatrick. Stephen Kilpatrick is, of course, the former host of Tales to Terrify. He works supporting assistive technologies for special education students and is currently working towards a role in information assurance. It's great to hear from you again, Stephen. Thanks for joining us for this special occasion. If you'd like to hear more from Stephen, he and I sat down for a chat a couple of weeks ago to discuss the podcast and offer a peek behind the curtain. If you're a Patreon subscriber, that conversation will be live on your feed this weekend. If you're not, it's not too late to sign up so you don't miss out. There's some behind-the-scenes nuggets and tales that I think you'll find interesting. Once again, Children of the Night, thank you for giving Tales to Terrify the incredible staying power it's had over the last 500 episodes. I'm so thankful to have such an amazing group of listeners that tune in each week horrifically talented and disturbing authors that share their dark imaginations, and so many fantastic voices that help bring these haunting stories to life. Not to mention our incredible staff here at the show that donate their time to make this show possible. I'm truly, truly proud of the little community we've built, and so appreciative of everyone who's continued to help it thrive. But it's that time again, children of the night. The hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Amazing fans like Kathy Robinson, aka Deadly Blonde. If you're not a supporter already, be like Kathy head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify where you'll find all kinds of perks from ad-free episodes and bonus content to shout-outs and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to help make it as dark and devious as possible. And we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher. Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts, and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now, you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Brian Rollins, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Join us again next week as we leap into the darkness with more... Tales to Terrify.
you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.